Now, more tips with your host, Rebecca Rogers. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. And now, here is our host, Rebecca Rogers. Hello, and welcome to our program, Lifestyle Improvement. This is your host, Rebecca. Today, we have with us Linda Porter. Linda has over 25 years' experience in the development and management of respite care. She is currently the program coordinator for Lifespan Respite Washington, which was started in 2002. In 2012, she received additional funding to develop a pilot respite voucher project that is currently providing support for the caregivers in the state of Washington. We have invited her today so that she can tell us more about this innovative pilot program that could be a model in order to provide this type of services for caregivers worldwide. Hello, Linda, and thank you so much for being a part of our program today. How are you? Fine. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for giving us your time to explain the importance of respite care. To start, tell us more about your organization, Lifespan Respite. It's a mouthful, isn't it? It is a, a mouthful. <laughs> struggle with it. I will first say to you that Lifespan Respite is uh, a national movement that's been around since about 2006. And uh, it's uh, through federal funding, um, Lifespan Respite has been supported. And and there's a program called Arch National Respite uh, Resource Center. And um, it has been instrumental in getting uh, grants out to people uh, throughout the United States of America. And we were one of the fortunate ones, about 13 states are receiving lifespan respite grants. We received ours in 2010 and were able to start a respite voucher pilot project in 2014. And they keep increasing that. The the federal government increases grant opportunities and then more people apply. We are are in our second grant. Um, So we've been in operation with federal grants. uh, And the idea for this current one is not only to provide a voucher program for respite that it goes beyond the pilot project we started in 2014. But we are also looking at providing uh, sustainability efforts to keep it going. So what is the main purpose then of Lifespan Respite? Well, we have a coalition of over 500 people throughout the state of Washington who are really uh, concerned about unpaid family caregivers and what uh, they do for our society. And so we want to provide support to them. And while we were in that process of discussion and trying to educate ourselves and learn from provider, uh, I'm sorry, caregivers, uh, what they need, it became clear that there were not enough respite options. And so we developed the pilot project to help provide one more area where people could apply if they're not getting respite in other ways. This is a program that people are actually utilizing. Are you able to reach out to the community and you're getting responses from the caregivers? Yes. Um, since January, we have had 107 people apply. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's uh, we're not doing a major marketing effort because we have uh, only you know a limited supply of money. And as we continue to get more voucher funding, then we can provide that. Our vouchers are for up to $1,000 of non-emergency respite. So it has to be able to be planned. It is for anybody across the lifespan, uh, any unpaid family caregiver who is basically providing 40 or more hours a week of direct care, monitoring and or supervision. So that's kind of a broad definition. 
they need to be providing this care for someone who has a special need or a disability. There are different ways that uh, people can utilize respite. We want people to be creative, but our system, unlike other systems like such as in Tennessee, uh, where they use independent or individual providers, family members, ours uses agencies and uh, the agencies are camps for children, camps for adults, like a special needs camp, such as uh, Easter Seals, Washington. We also have in-home support so people can get some light housekeeping, companion care, uh, or just direct care. We have in-home medical support and then parks and recreation programs. So uh, we're working to register a program that provides horseback riding. There's a variety of things. So sort of if the the caregiver uh, doesn't see somebody on our registration list that they want to use. We can work to get that to happen as long as they can meet our, our minimum requirements. We as caregivers hear a lot, get respite, you know, get respite. <laughs> and we know that rest is important. Tell us a little bit more, your definition of respite care. Our uh, definition is pretty simple. It does mean short breaks. And so sometimes that can be how the caregiver defines that. Where um, we're not going to be there so much for people who need to go to work, providing care for somebody while they go to work, uh, but we are going to be there for somebody who wants to go out and maybe do something with a friend they haven't seen in a long time, do things that they used to do before they became a caregiver. That could be even simple things like getting their hair done or their nails done, um, just having uh, time to go to the movies or just to go to another part of the house and and be alone with themselves and not have to worry about what's happening for their their family member who is uh, needing additional supports. What are some of the benefits for caregivers to the respite voucher program? You did mention some already. Do you want to expand more on that? Well, I I want to say that the more rested we are, the more well we are. Pretty significant uh, to make sure that we take care of ourselves. So that's the primary thing. And then I think it's really good, or we think it's really good for the care recipient to have stimulation and feel supported by others in the community, not just one caregiver day in and day out. And so this gives them the opportunity to have some of that, um, be able to tell their own story if they can to somebody different, um, just to get outside of themselves. So there's some definite benefits there. And many caregivers give up their, uh, their past lives before becoming a caregiver. Um, they may not go to church as they did before, They may not get together with friends. Um, So this is a way to support people in doing some of those things. Caregivers usually are incredibly able to manage a lot of things at once. Caregiver compassion um, can be something that gives you purpose and meaning. But it is that chronic stress that has not been dealt with that can be problematic. And what you're saying is that one of the definite things to keep in mind is taking the time to take that short break, correct? Absolutely. And what we find is that uh, family caregivers often have a difficult time identifying themselves as family caregivers because they're somebody's daughter or they're the spouse of the person who needs support. And and there's sort of an unwritten you know, expectation that you're going to be there in, through thick and thin. But we're going to not be there in the way that we can best be there unless we take care of ourselves along the way. So I really appreciate you uh, talking about that. I also have caregivers who think they don't need more support. They might even apply for our application. And then we get further along and they they win the award. 
and um, they'll say they'll they'll second guess themselves, and mm-hmm. they're they they feel needed by their family care you know family care recipient. They don't think anybody else can take care of them the way they can. It's all probably true, um, but it's also really important to take care of themselves. And so what we find is after people have had the care, or as they're getting further along in the process of setting everything in place, they become almost giddy, you know, just excited because they get a moment to think about doing something for themselves that they used to do. And and then when they do that, they can bring that experience back to their care recipient as well. So, you know, they can talk about what they did and that can be really exciting. I I would like to share that I have one uh, family uh, in their late 70s and um, the gentleman has been taking care of his wife who has Parkinson's disease. And he has expressed his sort of exhaustion and overwhelmed feelings. And at the same time, he loves and adores his wife. And he doesn't want to have her feel bad about him wanting to take time for himself. So, and she's so supportive. She's she's saying, honey, go out and do something. I want you to get away. Um, and they have a standing kind of uh, date where he goes golfing with his buddies and she gets to go to the spa for an hour and a half. And she wants to wait for him in the waiting room so that he gets more time. So um, so that's how they kind of can get a break. And yet there are many caregivers who can't get out of the house at all. So we, you know, we want to be there to support the variety of um, caregivers. Uh, and, and we also acknowledge by receiving help, asking for help, it is not an admission you can't do the job. It is not an admission that you don't love your family member more. Um, it is really about loving yourself and your family, even at, at greater levels. Absolutely. And I think that it is very interesting. The word caregiver starts with the word care, which to me, it means in order to care for someone else, you have to start with care for yourself. The other thing that I was going to bring up was caregiver guilt. The other day I was in a conference, uh, this lovely lady came and talked to me. The biggest issue that she had was she was so concerned about having to potentially put this family member in an institution. But she was completely overwhelmed with how she was going to continue caring for them. And so that's something you deal with a lot as well, correct? Absolutely. And and part of why programs like this are in existence is to help keep families together. It not only saves our society a lot of money, but, you know, which is sort of a, a to me a secondary benefit, but it means that people can stay where they are, stay in place, age in place. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to an institutional setting any sooner than I would need to. Um, And so I can appreciate that what caregivers are doing is amazing gifts to not only their family member, but to society. But the, the issue is they need to give themselves the gift of taking care of themselves as well. This is your host, Rebecca. And now we will take a short break and we will be right back with more ideas on lifestyle improvement. As a caregiver, you spend your days caring for the needs of someone else. But what are you doing to help yourself? 
In our Caregiver Survival 101 workshop, we teach you the self-help skills that will empower you to be healthier and more productive. Do you feel tired, overwhelmed, have difficulty sleeping? Do you feel isolated? All this could be signs of caregiver stress. Chronic stress can impact your health adversely and ultimately cause irreversible and unwanted physical problems. Take a step towards your own personal care. A healthy caregiver is a better caregiver. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to do what is needed to stay healthy today. Go to www.caregiversurvival101.com. That again is www.caregiversurvival101.com. And discover how we can help you help yourself. Or call 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877-957-7387, extension 101. Caregiver Survival 101, because care starts with you. We have a name for caregiver, and it's really hard to come up with a name for the person receiving the care. You say patient, you say family member, but sometimes it's a, a friend um, that's providing the care, or um, you know, I think we say fr- family friend or neighbor is what we consider a caregiver, and um, and so it's beyond that. So we kind of use the term sometimes as care partners, but we still have a hard time coming up with what's the name for the person receiving the care. So we call them care recipients, care receivers, but it really comes down to family members, their family. They're somebody you love and and who can love them better than you, right? So. Exactly. And you know, that's funny because I, I find myself always saying your loved one because right. that is really what it is. It is your loved one, whoever it is. You obviously love them enough to give the time, give your this portion of your life to commit this time to love them and care for them. So there are probably some limitations to your program. Tell me what those limitations are. Well, in our particular program, we're not able to provide transportation. And so some organizations can do that, like the the public agencies, like Developmental Disabilities Administration, or the Family Caregiver Support Program might offer opportunities for paid workers or caregivers, paid caregivers to transport someone to um, a meeting, a doctor's appointment. We're not able to do that because we're small and we we are run through a private nonprofit. We just do not have the liability uh, coverage for that. So, um, and then sometimes in the state of Washington anyway, um, there are some geographic locations that are pretty remote and difficult to get to. And so, it's hard sometimes to find enough paid workers to serve different populations. We still work with them as much as we can. We offer creative respite solutions. What do they, you know, how can we help uh, family caregivers look to their churches, to their synagogues, to their, um, you know, community centers, um, even neighbors to say, what can you do? If you cannot provide care for my loved one, can you go and um, get a meal? Can you run some letters to the post office? You know, what are some basic things? Can you pick up prescriptions? Or um, So there's a lot of things that uh, other people can sometimes do in um, other communities, but we have some limitations. Um, we also want to work really well to meet cultural um, and language needs of different families. And we do use a language line to help people get connected. But, you know, I, I know that there are some 
cultures that are not entirely comfortable with other people and other agencies coming to their homes. So we understand that that's a, that can be a barrier and we're starting to look at that and what that means to different populations of people. And then we also do require families to, on some level, advocate for themselves and help in the process to move forward. But I find um, at the same time, there are a lot of caregivers who are really feeling so stressed and burdened and overwhelmed they almost have a difficult time picking up the phone. You know, beyond getting to acknowledging they need the help, being able to know how to step through a process is difficult. So we rely on a lot of community case managers and referrals outside. Our program is very small. If I were gonna change it, it would be to add some staffing support so that we can provide some of those case management services as well in a little better way. And then I wanted to say that our voucher amount is fairly small. If you think about $1,000, it's not. it doesn't buy a lot of respite. It might buy oh, less than 40 hours of in-home support. That's just straight in-home support without medical support. So if you have to add layers of medical, then it can get more expensive, up to $75, $100 an hour for nursing support. And that doesn't feel fair in some way to me for family members. So um, I feel like we have to look at that as a as a greater issue in our world. Um, we also have um, certain groups or populations that have stigmas attached to them. So um, it's hard to find support services for family members who have neurological conditions, such as Alzheimer's, dementia, um, children with uh, neurological, you know, concerns. Um, uh, so those kinds of uh, populations, I don't mean it in any uh, negative way, but um, they are often met with some reluctance or resistance from community agencies to engage because they don't know how to deal with specific behaviors. So we're, we're looking at that and how can we train our workforce to be you know, better able to help. We want to just look at how we can increase funding because we only, for this current year, only have a $55,000 grant. And that's pretty small. So, you know, I mean, it might even pay for a child to go to overnight camp, but it won't pay for all of it. So there's a whole variety of things we'd like to continue to expand. And the pilot project a year ago, and now our current program, gives us the opportunity to show legislators and advocates. So my question is, this respite care that you're providing, or the $1,000 that you're providing, do you actually find the, the service provider to give the respite care, or do you give the cash and then a family member finds the service provider? This is part of one of the sort of dilemmas that we have is that because I'm the only worker in the state of Washington on this project, I operate more as a fiscal um, agent, if you will, and we get the, we, we find and register provider agencies, um, and then we have a listing and people can select from that. And then if the caregiver doesn't want to use one of those and they want to use something else, as long as they qualify, we can get an interagency agreement going with that particular agency. And I've done that many times. Um, And so we then uh, will basically have them contact the agency themselves. And then they set up what they often do is in-home assessment to visit with the care receiver and the caregiver and see what the needs are. And then they determine what their rates are going to be. And, and then we draft an agreement to let everybody know we're going to pay for it. And there's a time frame they have to use it. And then, um, and then we pay the provider. Um, we can, I do follow up as I can, but I can't always do that. And we try mostly to connect them to existing services if they can. 
many, there's 830,000 caregivers in the state of Washington. And, you know, we're just going to help a small number and we know it, but I look forward to the future where perhaps it becomes part of our um, medical, you know, response that just as doctors can write prescriptions for uh, medications, perhaps they can write out prescriptions for respite. That's my hope because it's so helpful to the body, right? So if we can get our healthcare you know, partners involved a little bit more and our legislators, perhaps that's a solution. That's a great idea. Now, you say uh, that number, those are the caregivers you know about. But of course, there's right. so many that, that none of us know about that are doing this right. very quietly and, and just enduring. But that, I think it is an amazing idea. It should definitely go all the way to legislation. <laughs> right. It should uh, be put into law. The other question that I had, or the comment that I had for you is that, it is a great thing that you have agencies that you go through because, of course, you make this process easier for the family members. It is extremely complicated, as I have found out myself, to actually find a caregiver yourself, go through many laws and regulations as far as becoming employers and as far as uh, paying taxes. So the cost can be incredibly large. Yeah, and not, not just the cost, but the time, the management you become like a, a mini employer and you have to understand those laws and you have to be able to hire and in some cases terminate the employment of people who are working for you if you're, you're providing or doing it uh, with individuals. And just because somebody fits the time frame to come to your home doesn't mean that they fit the, the quality of care that you need for your specific family members. So those are kind of issues. And then we we have a system where paid workers are typically paid quite low. Um, roughly, you know, 10 to $12 an hour, which is pretty low. And so, you know, often you get entry level workers, um, people who are having maybe some difficulties with other, you know, getting other jobs or in the process of transition. Uh, For my son, I had an excellent caregiver for two years. And it was wonderful to have him for two years, I have to say. Um, and he was very similar to my son. He had some similar history and they got along so well. And then he went off to get his uh, certified nursing associate degree. And of course, he's going to be fantastic in that role. But of course, I lost him in the process. So, <laughs> right. so it's, it's kind of a stepping stone position sometimes for people. On the same token, I think that uh, some family members are willing to experiment and take a chance because the cost of an agency worker can be is so high that right. for some families is absolutely unreachable, correct? Right. Thank you so much for expanding on that and giving us an idea. Of, now, can the vouchers pay for caregivers to employ family and friends? We're not able to just for the simple fact that I cannot possibly vet or check people's backgrounds. And that's very important to us to make sure people are, have their background clearances. We want to make sure people have um, liability insurance, things like that. And I can't possibly do that in the scope of this current program. And in Washington State, we have some really robust training requirements for our caregivers. And so you want to make sure they've gone through all of the training. Um, so I just can't can't do it myself. But I imagine that if it's a family or friend that is actually a professional, like let's say as a nurse or, you know, that type of thing, then you would look into that possibly? Well, what, what I say is that they could certainly apply through an agency and um, have encouraged people to do that. But sometimes the agencies have restrictions of their own about taking care of family members. 
So it is an area as part of, I sort of think of ourselves as two arms. We have the voucher program, which sort of gives us information for the coalition program. And so that's one of the things we need to continue to explore through our coalition and advocacy efforts is how can we um, con- connect the two or, or um, create some uh, pathways to address those kinds of things. Some family members are much more comfortable having somebody in their family or a friend that they know take care of their family member. It doesn't feel like it has the stigma. The care recipient is often much more open to that, you know, than having a stranger in their home. I think you mentioned this, but I didn't know if you wanted to add any more on who qualifies for the services. Well, they need to be an unpaid, unserved family caregiver. So that means that they cannot be receiving public funding uh, through any, you know, any other like source like uh, Developmental Disabilities Administration. This is not to say they don't deserve respite and more respite. Many come and say, I've only got two hours a week. And it breaks my heart to tell them, I'm sorry, because we have people who have no connections, no services who are contacting us, people who have never even identified themselves as caregivers. So it's not devaluing the, the scope of what other family members do, but that is one of our restrictions. Um, however, if they're paying privately and or they're on a long wait list for any of those programs, we can assist them. So, and if we have, as long as we have funding available, so that becomes the issue. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and it's not to be interpreted as medical advice. What if there was a way to help your struggling child perform better academically? Would you pick up the phone and call? Lysol Improvement Occupational Therapy Services in Puyallup, Washington, supports wellness and optimal educational performance. Instead of just reteaching information, we endeavor to identify the possible root causes for your child's learning difficulties. We offer targeted testing to assist in the creation of an individualized plan and provide you with the brain training tools that can help improve academic performance. Visit our website at www.lifestyleimprovement.com or give us a call today at 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877-957-7387, extension 101, for an initial free phone consultation. Lifestyle Improvement Occupational Therapy. We're ready to partner with parents and to help your child succeed. Thank you for being with us today on Lifestyle Improvement for part one of our interview with Linda Porter. Linda has over 25 years of experience in the development and management of respite care. She is currently the program coordinator for Lifespan Respite Washington, which was started in 2002. In 2012, she received additional funding to develop a pilot respite voucher project that is currently providing support to caregivers in the state of Washington. Please join us again next Sunday morning at 7.30 for part two of our interview with Linda Porter.